Morning. I just finished, as some of you have, if you're reading with us in the, our Bible reading plan, the life story of Joseph, uh, which is, takes the last handful of chapters, 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. We're reading it. And I was impressed. On, I mean, I've read the story of Joseph before many times over the, you know, the years of being a Christian and reading the Bible. But I was impressed this time, um, in light of perhaps this set of sermons that we're doing here, um, how much Joseph's life, what a powerful illustration it was of a life lived on purpose, right? Because you get to see, not every Bible character has an arc where you see a lot of their life. Sometimes you just see a moment of it, right? They're just part of one story and they're gone. But the life of Joseph, you see most of his entire life. You meet him at 17. Genesis 50 says he was buried in a coffin in Egypt at 110. I mean, you see an arc of his life. But what amazed me about um, this story of Joseph, what, what happens in Joseph's life? You know, he, at 17, he has this great dream, right? I mean, all purpose starts with a dream or a vision for your life. And he has this dream, but almost immediately, right, it's challenged in a number of ways, right? He gets sold as a slave to his, by his brothers who, who have a, a, an issue with him, a lot of jealousy and animosity. They're sold. He's, he becomes a slave in a foreign country. He's falsely accused of a sexual assault, which he didn't do. He ends up in prison for something he didn't do. He's kind of forgotten about. And by the next time he sees his brothers, his family, 22 years have gone by. He was 17, now he's 39 years old. But when he sees them, he's in a position now to actually help them and deliver them from famine and from trouble, which was the purpose God gave him all those years before. But what amazed me about reading this story was what, what, I was, um, what, what, what captured my imagination was not all that he had suffered, which is true, there's a lot in there, but how much he had changed over the course of these many years. When he finally, uh, when, when, he, when we first meet Joseph, Genesis 37, this is what it says about him. It says very little. He's 17 years old, and it says, Joseph gave a bad report about his brothers, right? I'm the youngest. I probably did this a time or two growing up with my five siblings, you know. He gave a bad report about his brothers to his father. There was a reason they didn't like him so much, right? He was the favored, and, and, and he decided to say and tattle on his brothers and gave a bad report. When, you meet, when he meets his brothers again, 22 years later, here's what happens. He throws his arms around them. It said he wept so loud that the Egyptians in the outer court heard him, and he looks them in the face, and he says, do not be angry at yourselves. You didn't send me here. God did. And it dawned on me that Joseph's greatest enemy to that great dream God had given him as a 17-year-old was not his external circumstances. But boy, if anyone could have cataloged a list of, you know, if this didn't happen, if that didn't happen, I got the shaft, I didn't deserve it, this was wrong, uh, the, all the wrongs that were done him, one negative turn after other, it could have been Joseph. But those were not the greatest enemies to his realizing his purpose for his life. His greatest enemy was the selfishness of his own heart, right? And I think the same is true for you, and the same is true for me, and this is the subject of where we are in this 
passage in Matthew 15, where we left off last week. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus' subject, in, in a message titled, The Enemy of Faith. Matthew 15, where we left off last week, if you have Matthew 15, beginning in verse 8, we're kind of walking into the middle of an argument here. Matthew 15, 8 through 20, follow along as I read. These people... Jesus says, Jesus speaking, Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked him. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. (laughs) But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. You know that Jesus was a healer, okay? In fact, we looked at this this past summer because we've been going through the book of Matthew for uh, over the course of a year. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, at least in Matthew's gospel, he, he doesn't do all of it, but the miracles of Jesus are kind of concentrated in those two chapters. There's, I think there's 12 different miracles in there. And as a healer, of course, Jesus um, touched a lot of what the Old Testament calls unclean people. Now, what does it mean, unclean? It's not necessarily a word that you and I would use. It doesn't mean you got dirt on your, under your fingernails or something. But what unclean people, is they, they, were, they were people who are ceremonially unclean or ritually unclean, right, for one reason or another, had to do with the Old Testament law. And, and they weren't supposed to touch people, but Jesus, you know, he, he did what he wanted to do. And if you read carefully, we looked at it this summer, one of the first people he heals is a leper, someone had leprosy. I mean, there's whole chapters in the Bible in the Old Testament where leprosy was this sort of extra special, you know, quarantined kind of uh, community. And if you touched a leprous person, you were unclean, right? You weren't supposed to be within 15 feet of them, if you read the legislation. Well, Jesus touched one, and then Jesus touched a dead body. You're not supposed to do that either. He hung around with tax collectors and sinners. So what you see here in Matthew 15, we didn't read it all, is this, you know, Jesus sort of going a little further than he should have with unclean people, leads to a great confrontation, right, with the religious leaders. We, I dove into the middle of it. These people honor me with their lips. This is Jesus in a sort of face-to-face with these religious leaders. It leads to a confrontation, but out of this confrontation comes a statement. I would say a profound truth that not only is a profound truth that, that says something about all forms of religion, But it's even a profound truth that says something about human nature itself. And it's in here in verse 11. Okay, Jesus calls the crowd to him and he said, listen. Listen and understand. What goes into somebody's mouth, right? 
That doesn't defile them, right? It's not about the food you wear or the clothes you wear or the people you touch, the television you watch. It's not what defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth. That's what defiles them. And what comes out of their mouth, if you tether that rope, it doesn't go to what's in the refrigerator. It goes to what's in the human heart. For out of the heart come all of these awful things. Murder, adultery, on and on, right? Your greatest enemy, your greatest challenge, I should say, this is the point, to growth is within you. This is true for every single one of us, right? Now, it's certainly true for everyone that's a Christian, but I'd even say this is true if you're not a Christian. We'll get to this in a minute, right? I just want to do this with my life. I want to be a great, you know, football player. I want to be a great mom. I want to agree a great dad. I want whatever it is that you want to be, right? We spend so much of our lives, right, you know, fighting the wrong battles, right? It's all about if I only had more money, if I only had more friends, if I only had greater, you know, a network of individuals. Listen, your greatest challenge to growth, my greatest challenge to growth, to accomplishing a purpose, in this case, God's purpose for my life, is within me. The greatest enemy, this is what Jesus is saying, what Joseph learned, is the sin in the human heart, okay? Which needs, by the way, Christian friends, constant attention if you want to make progress in your life, right? I've been a Christian for 35 years. I didn't stop being a sinner. Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> I know some of you think that, but right? Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if you didn't struggle anymore with sin? The greatest enemy that I have, that you have, is the sin in our hearts, Look at Paul's testimony, just two words from the Apostle Paul's testimony. Romans 7, and I just use him because he's such a great, you know, obviously a, a, a serious example uh, in his life as an apostle. This is Paul's testimony, just two verses, Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. See, the Apostle Paul still had a sinful nature. So do you, so do I, right? For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, right? Raise your hand and your heart, right, if you feel that way. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's not saying, you've got to read the whole thing, I'm just giving you a snapshot. He's not saying that he's a, you know, he can't not do a good thing. He's not saying he always does the wrong thing, right? His, that all of his actions are contrary to the desires of his heart. No, he's not saying he always does. I don't know that he's even saying, you've got to read the rest of the chapter, right? And even get into chapter 8, which gets to the solution, Romans 8. That he even often does it, Right? But he's trying to bring a very important truth to you and me, saying, listen, as a follower of Jesus, as a leader, as an apostle, you and I will still struggle, and even lo these many years later, my greatest enemy, right? That's why Paul could, you know, walk through all kinds of challenges and jail and persecution and conflict, and, you know, he said, listen, my greatest enemy is not what's out there, it's what's in here. That's what he's trying to say. Verse 19, listen to Jesus' words. Very, Jesus is very thoughtful, and um, intentional. For out of the heart, I already read this, verse 19, come evil thoughts. Now, dash, 
You might not pick up on this unless you took some time to read it. But when he says murder, adultery, sexual immorality, sexual immorality theft, false t- slander, he's giving you the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandment in the second tablet order. Why is Jesus doing that? Very thoughtful. Jesus knows his Bible. He's saying, listen, I'm gonna, he's arguing with these religious leaders saying, listen, What's the, what are the big challenges that the Bible talks about? What is the law of God that you care so much about? You're, 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 you're um, giving my disciples a hard time because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. That's how this all starts. But he said, listen, let's go to the big 10, right? And let me say something about the big 10, right? What they had done is he, is, is he starts with murder, adultery, sexual morality. He said, these big issues they come from the heart, right? You guys are so worried about what's happening and when people are, you know, they're, they're, they're genuflect or not, whether or not they wash their hands. But the, the biggest issues of the law of God, they're in the heart, right? They're in the heart. What, they, they had tried to reduce the law of God, the moral law of God, to external observations, right? And then he ends this long list, with the word slander. Now, why does he end with the word slander? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Why does he do that? Because it's words about others, right? Words about others that ruin human relationships, that ruin even our relationship with God or harm it, uh, that come from the heart, not whether or not we wash our hands, Right? These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, they do not defile a person. Think about this. I imagine that for those 22 years, between the time Joseph left his brothers and the time he saw him again, he had a lot of time to think about how that bad report that he'd given about his brothers. See, those are words. And words come from the heart. Right? And how that bad report that he'd given about his brothers was really what landed him in all the trouble that he'd experienced over those many, many years. Listen, if Joseph struggled, if the apostle Paul struggled, so will you and so will I. Your greatest challenge to growth is within you. And then Jesus is going to, before he gets to the solution, he wants to unpack the problem a little bit. Second thing this passage teaches us, is an outside-in approach will not work. Right? This is what's so central to this passage, and I want you to think about it. Whether you're a devoted Christian in this room, you're a new Christian in this room, you're not even a Christian in this room. But what are, you trying, what, what are your means to accomplish what it is that God has called you to do, what you want to do, what has been laid on your heart, like a Joseph kind of thing, and what do you think today are the things that are standing in your way, Right? An outside-in approach will not work. It will not change your life. It will not help you live your life on purpose. The most common response to this problem, right, if you recognize it, if I read this passage and I say, you know, Jesus, you're right. Now that I think about it, if I'm really honest and I get through all the blaming and the excuses and all the things that I don't like about the people that bother me, when I realize, you know what, the greatest problem I have is really inside of me, the, the, the most common response to this problem is some form of religion, okay? Even Christian religion. 
Because what they do, what I do, what people have done, what the, what the religious leaders did here, as I said, is they wanted to reduce the moral law of God, which Jesus clearly says comes from here, right? That's what he says. Listen, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth commandment, they're rooted in the heart. The moral law of God is not, ultimately it has to do with how you live your life, but it has to be connected into the heart, and what they wanted to do, they wanted to reduce it to external behaviors. These people honor me with their lips, right? But their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching, or, 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 or with the teachings. They worship me in vain. Think about that for a minute. This whole sermon, I'm talking about Jesus' sermon, but mine too, it's sort of an insider sermon. He's talking to religious leaders. It's almost like he's giving this in the temple, in the temple courts, and his disciples. And he's saying, listen, it is not only possible, it's very widespread that many people, maybe some of us, we worship God. We're here, we're in church. But it's empty. That's what vain means. There's no substance behind it. They honor me with their lips. They talk a good game, but their heart is far from me. Is that me? Is that you? You know, if, if you read, as I do, as a pastor, I guess, you know, about church and, and church life, you would know this. this would, even though if you haven't heard this, you would, you, this would resonate with you. That church attendance in America is, is down. And not just church attendance, but all forms of worship. I'm, you know, Jewish, uh, Muslim, etc., People going to houses of faith is down. Now, they've been measuring this forever, but Pew just put out a research study, the, the, the Great Pew Research Group, in 2018. And they said, and this is just, just in between the 20th century and the, in the 21st century. In 1999, okay, the end of the 20th century, 70% of people said they went to some form of worship. Now, we know that includes people that, you know, Christmas, Easter only, whatever, but the point is, they checked still even after the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and all the changes that we've had, 70% of people said on the survey that they went to church even if they didn't. They said they did, right? They, they, they claimed some kind of faith. In 2018, it was down to 50% in just 20 years. Now, all the reasons that they put in these studies are things that you would think about, right? People, the breakdown of the family, this and that kind of moral breakdown of society. But among all of these negative reasons, there was actually one reason I thought was a positive reason that people do not come to church. And the positive reason is this, that in parts of the 20th century, okay, maybe my parents' generation or your grandparents' generation or whatever the case may be, there were parts in the 20th century and certainly before the 20th century where going to church was a cultural expectation. In other words, people went to church, right? I mean, I lived in the South for 14 years and this is more true in this. I mean, criminals go to church, prostitutes go to church, politicians go to church. I mean, everybody goes to church in the South, right? I mean, that's an overstatement. But the point is, it's a cultural expectation. But beyond that cultural expectation, there is this sense that they go there because they're satisfying a requirement. They're making some points with God. It's sort of a self-justifying kind of Christianity or kind of of, of faith. That's what it is, right? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. 
Their teachings are merely human rules. Let me say this to you. If you came to church today because you wanted to um, earn some favor with God, you came for the wrong reason, right? And over time, you'll either stop coming or you won't be coming very often. Why is that? Because it won't touch your heart. Sometimes the preacher just is boring, by the way, but sometimes it's because your heart hasn't been opened. Your eyes haven't been opened. What did Jesus say about these religious leaders? They're blind, leaders of the blind, right? Unless God has opened your heart, unless God has opened your eyes, you won't see what there is to see. People, true Christians, come to church not to earn God's favor. Listen carefully. They come to enjoy God's favor. That's why we sing worship songs. Sometimes you see people, well, they have a tear in their eye. It's not because they, they're, they're expressing a sense of gratitude because they're being reminded. Colin said, remember love, remember mercy. That's why we sing. That's why you come to church simply to be reminded of God's favor, not to earn God's favor. You know, many people today, think about the culture that we live in. Do not even believe, back to Jesus' sermon, do not even believe that sin is a, is, is, is a, is a, is a true um, concept. You can't even have, you'd almost be embarrassed, right, to have a conversation, whatever it is. Maybe somebody's, this happened, this trouble happened, front page of the newspaper, you know, crime, murder, rape, whatever, even the worst things. We'd have a hard time, many of us, saying, well, boy, there's, you know, it's sin in the human heart, or people have sin, or people need to repent of their sin. People don't even have a concept of sin anymore in our culture. But the funny thing about that is, certainly our, you know, the academy doesn't, but the funny thing about this idea that we've taken sin out of the, you know, the parlance or the vocabulary or our understanding of society, the consequences of sin and the failed strategies to deal with sin are everywhere present. So we don't believe in the problem, but we can see the consequences of it everywhere, every strata of our society. And self-justifying religion, is Jesus' point, is not the answer. An outside-in approach, no matter, even if it looks, even if it's Christian, right? Of a washing your hands kind of approach. I'm going to solve the inner problem in my heart, this thing called sin that's in the deepest part of who I am. Out of the heart comes adultery, murder, theft, sexual immorality, and slander. I'm going to solve that through some kind of self-justifying religion, it never will touch the problem. Listen, let me tell you what else won't touch the problem. Politics will not touch the problem. Why are we so hyper-politicized in our culture today? I mean, it's, it's worse than it's been at least in my lifetime, okay? Why is it? I, this is why I think it is. Because politics has become a new religion for many people. For people who've gotten rid of faith, they're, they're, they're not even going to church you know, as, a, as, as an exercise in, in cultural expectation, they're not going to church at all. They've thrown the whole thing out. But see, there's still an inner need, an inner desire to matter. To, to, there, there's still real hungers and needs to, to, to satisfy and to, be in, and to have purpose in living. So instead of finding it in the, in, the, in the one place we were meant to find it, they find it in politics. But see, there's a problem with self-justifying religion and there's a problem with politics, although they're both important. That is, at least politics are important in a sense. We ought to care. 
but they don't they cannot touch the the heart the, the needs in the human heart that's why we get that's why people are so vitriol that's why we people at each other's throats that's why people seem to care so much more than they should we can't even have a political discourse anymore because it's a disproportionate. There's a bigger problem that they're trying to solve and politics is never going to solve the problems of the human heart. Let me tell you something else. Self-justifying religion won't solve it. That's an outside-in approach. Politics isn't going to solve it. It's an outside-in approach. Either is the uniquely American religion of success. You see, some people think we'll solve it through our careers. That's become a new form of religion. But that won't solve it either. All the success in the world, friends, is not going to solve the anxiety and the needs of the human heart. I saw just recently this documentary called Miss Americana. It was a documentary um, about Taylor Swift. Now, I, I don't know much about Taylor Swift, um, but she's obviously a, a major, uh, you know, cultural figure. So I wanted to learn about her, but this is what I learned about in this documentary. About four or five years ago, some of you know this already, she had a bad year, okay? And there was some, there was some popular backlash, so much so that she took, a, according to this documentary, she got out of the whole business for a year, just kind of stepped back. And what she learns, I'm just going to show you one minute of this documentary, she has this moment of reflection, and she learns even superstardom, even phenomenal career success could not meet the needs of the human heart. Even that is an outside-in approach that doesn't, reach the problems of the human heart. Watch just this one minute video. We're people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically insecure, because we liked the sound of people clapping because it made us forget about how much we feel like we're not good enough. And I've been doing this for 15 years and I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of the... just... just feels like it's more than music now at this point. And just most days I'm like, okay. But then sometimes I'm just like, it just gets loud sometimes. When people fall out of love with you, there's nothing you can do to make them change their mind. They just don't love you anymore. I just wanted to disappear. Nobody physically saw me for a year. And that was what I thought they wanted. This approach, okay? I don't know if you heard those words. When people fall out of love with you, right? There's nothing you can do to get them back. I think those were her words, right? I mean, there's not a person in this room, I think I can comfortably say, whatever you do for a living that's going to have that kind of success that that woman's had, right? So take a, take, a, take a lesson, okay? It's not going to satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. This approach, I think, is as true today as it ever was. And this message is not, by the way, just for the religious naysayers. This isn't just some little argument about whether or not you wash your hands, Right? 
When, after it's all over, Jesus throws the religious leaders under the bus, right? They're blind leaders of the blind. Peter said to him, this is so interesting. I'm sure this is for you and me. Explain this parable to us, right? First of all, it's not even really a parable, right? It's just a statement. I guess you could call it a parable. That which goes into the person's mouth doesn't defile them. It's what comes out of the person that defiles them. It's connected to the human heart. I don't know if that's really a parable, but he says, explain this parable to us. What does it tell you? Peter's saying, listen, I don't get it, Jesus. I think what these guys are saying makes sense. The outside in approach, that's what I've been doing. I thought that's what you were advocating. Are you still so dull? Okay. If it's true for Peter, it can be true for you. It can be true for me. Okay. An outside-in approach will not work. Okay. Last point. Only a life planted by Jesus can truly prosper. I'm just going to give you this in a minute or two because this is largely, you know, I want to stay true to the text. And this is a, this is a, this is a hard message. You know, he's sort of digging the ground before he's going to um, take you on to planting the next thing. But there, there is something here for us, right? Only a life planted by Jesus can truly prosper. In Mark chapter 7, if you're taking notes, it's the same account, the same um, discussion with Jesus and the religious leaders. But there's something said there. They just, Mark's gospel has it. Uh, Matthew's doesn't. After this great pronouncement, what goes, what, comes, uh, uh, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. It's what comes out that defiles them. Mark's ha- Mark 7 has this little parenthetical note and says this. By saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, what does that mean? It's a phenomenal statement. And if you think about what it said, you can maybe realize how why some people had a hard time with Jesus. What Jesus says, when Mark says, in this statement, Jesus declared all foods clean, what he said is, in one fell swoop, he takes a whole section of the Old Testament covenant, the kosher laws, and he says, they no longer have any more value. From now on, imagine, it's just like, de facto, by a fiat. Now, friends, all of those tedious, difficult laws that made you clean or unclean, touching a dead body, eating the wrong kinds of food, that, you know, whether the, the animal uh, has, you know, a cleft palate or, 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 or hooved or all these, all these things that you had to worry about, you don't have to worry about them anymore because I've declared all foods clean. I've just wiped out and canceled this whole section of the Old Testament covenant. How could Jesus possibly do that? Listen carefully. Jesus could cancel that and other things, because in his life and in his death, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. This is the gospel. In other words, all those things that Paul said, remember his testimony? He said, you know, I get up out of bed, I know what I want to do, but I just can't carry it out. And if you read that whole section, because the law comes and says to me, just like Jesus says here in, in, in verses 18 and 19, you know, murder really, friends, is really about hate. Oh, Adultery is really about lust. Oh, you know, theft is really about covetousness and wanting the things that you're... Oh, you know, I can't even get out of bed. You see, the law 
is so powerful and the law does its work not on the level of the hands but on the level of the heart. And in that sense, Paul says at the end of Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can help me? And, and, and then in Romans chapter 8 says, Jesus can. Because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. This is the gospel. He walked through this human experience with a zip code and parents and all these in, in temptations. And he was tempted in every single way yet without sin. And where you didn't live the perfect life or I don't live the perfect he lived it. So Jesus Christ can declare all foods clean because he did it for you. Let me say this. If you came into this room today and you say, listen, I'm a churchgoer, but I've been one you know, that honors God with my lips, but my heart is far from him. My worship is in vain. I've been doing the outside-in approach. Let me say something to you this morning. Jesus can declare you clean. That's what the gospel is, right? You can never get there. Your religious good works won't get there. All the politics in the world won't get there. Listen, your career success won't get there. The only person who can satisfy the heavy demand, moral demands of the law is Jesus Christ. And he did it in his perfect life and he did it in his death. And your job and my job is not to try to do it after him. It's to receive what he has done for you. He declares you clean. Amen? This is, what it, this is, this is, this is the only way it's ever going to happen. Let me just read one verse and we're done. For Psalm 1. Because my point was this. Only a life planted by Jesus can truly prosper. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. But what does it mean to be planted by God? Verse one, 3 of, of Psalm 1. This person, that person, this is a picture of what, what it means to, to be in a, in, a, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? It's not a transaction. It's not a one-time decision. It's a lifestyle. That person is like a tree, Planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do will prosper. Okay? A relationship with God is a whole new orientation of life where God plants you or plants me, and we are nurtured by the streams of water, the Word of God. That's what we talked about in the month of January. Right? You have to, you, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you feel like you're not making progress, you're, finding, you're, you're actually trying to earn your salvation more than enjoy your salvation. You're trying to achieve things from the outside in. Let me tell you something. You've got to get back to basics. You are planted by God, and it's about the four habits we talked about in January. It's about time with God and His Word. It's about time in accountable community with others. It's about serving in the world out of gratitude of what God has done for you. If you don't have those habits in your life, you're not going to be a tree planted by rivers. This is what Jesus is saying, right? It's an inside um, out approach, not an outside in approach. And if you're not a Christian, it begins by allowing Jesus to declare you clean. Right? You have to just open yourself and be grateful and say, uh, you know, uh, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised from the dead, you can be saved, right? That's the experience. He declares you clean because he lived a perfect life. The rest of us, we need to realize God plants you. 
And we have to be intentional about that nurturing. Because as Paul said, as Joseph said, the sin in the human heart, it didn't go away the day you became a Christian. In fact, if you read Romans 7 for lunch today, the problems get worse because you become aware of them, not less. But your resources become great. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be with, Lord, my brothers and sisters in this room. And Lord, we, we come to you with humble hearts and open hearts and minds to want to be that tree. I want to be that tree planted by streams of water um, that grows in, in seasons that whose leaf does not wither and that whatever I do in the right sense prospers, Lord, that I'm truly growing and, and, and having the kind of fruit in my life that you have designed me to have. I pray that, Lord, for all of us in this room. If we are in this room and, and Lord, we are Christians but are challenged by this message, challenged by this, you know, whether or not we are truly uh, worshiping you in the way that you have designed us to, or if we're worshiping you in vain, if our, if our Christianity is, is largely an outside-in approach. Lord, change our hearts, change our minds. Help us to put ourselves under your leadership. Help us to allow you to plant us deeply into your word, deeply into your community that we might grow into the men and the women and the students that you want us to be. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last thing before I send you out this morning, I don't know if you, uh, you saw one of these outside, uh, you might, these cards, but once a month we have these Pray, Go, Give mission gatherings. It's a way to, to profile some of the mission opportunities we have at the church. Today there is one. It's right after service, so it's I mean, after the next one. So if you're doing something here, going to a class, uh, and Ken Pitcher from Refuge Rochester, great brother and missionary of ours, will be here talking about missionary, uh, or I mean involvement with refugees in Rochester. We have a number of people doing it, but it's a great opportunity. There's some food there. I want to make that aware. I'll make you aware of that. Amen? All right, have a good day.